Chapter Two, Part Two of The Haunted Man and the Ghost's Bargain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Haunted Man and the Ghost's Bargain by Charles Dickens. Chapter Two The Gift Diffused, Part Two. After a pause, Mrs. Tetterby said she was better now, and began to laugh. "'My little woman,' said her husband, dubiously, "'are you quite sure you're better? Or are you, Sophia, about to break out in a fresh direction?' "'No, Dolphus, no,' replied his wife. "'I am quite myself.' With that, settling her hair, and pressing the palms of her hands upon her eyes, she laughed again. "'What a wicked fool I was, to think so for a moment,' said Mrs. Tetterby. "'Come nearer, Dolphus, and let me ease my mind, and let me tell you what I mean. Let me tell you all about it.' Mr. Tetterby, bringing his chair closer, Mrs. Tetterby laughed again, gave him a hug, and wiped her eyes. "'You know, Dolphus, my dear,' said Mrs. Tetterby, "'that when I was single,' I might have given myself away in several directions. At one time, four after me at once. Two of them were sons of Mars. "'We're all sons of Mars, my dear,' said Mr. Tetterby, jointly with Paz. "'I don't mean that,' replied his wife. "'I mean soldier-sergeants.' "'Oh,' said Mr. Tetterby. "'Well, Dolphus, I'm sure I never think of such things now, to regret them and I'm sure I've got as good a husband, and would do as much to prove that I was fond of him, as—' "'As any little woman in the world,' said Mr. Tetterby. "'Very good. Very good.' If Mr. Tetterby had been ten feet high, he could not have expressed a gentler consideration for Mrs. Tetterby's fairy-like stature, and if Mrs. Tetterby had been two feet high, she could not have felt it more appropriately her due. "'But you see, Dolphus,' said Mrs. Tetterby, "'this being Christmas-time, when all people who can, make holiday, "'and when all people who have got money, like to spend some, "'I did, somehow, get a little out of sorts when I was in the streets just now. "'There were so many things to be sold, such delicious things to eat, "'such fine things to look at, such delightful things to have, "'and there was so much calculating and calculating necessary.' before I durst lay out a sixpence for the commonest thing, and the basket was so large, and wanted so much in it, and my stock of money was so small, and would go such a little way. You hate me, don't you, Dolphus? Not quite, said Mr. Tetterby, as yet. Well, I'll tell you the whole truth, pursued his wife, penitently, and then perhaps you will. I felt all this, so much, when I was trudging about in the cold, and when I saw a lot of other calculating faces and large baskets trudging about, too, that I began to think whether I mightn't have done better, and been happier, if I hadn't, the wedding ring went round again, and Mrs. Tetterby shook her downcast head as she turned it. I see, said her husband quietly, if you hadn't married at all, or if you had married someone else. "'Yes,' sobbed Mrs. Tetterby. "'That's really what I thought. "'Do you hate me now, Dolphus?' 
Why, no, said Mr. Tetterby. I don't find that I do, as yet. Mrs. Tetterby gave him a thankful kiss, and went on. I begin to hope you won't, now, Dolphus, though I'm afraid I haven't told you the worst. I can't think what came over me. I don't know whether I was ill, or mad, or what I was, but I couldn't call up anything that seemed to bind us to each other, or to reconcile me to my fortune. All the pleasures and enjoyments we had ever had, they seemed so poor and insignificant, I hated them. I could have trodden on them. And I could think of nothing else, except our being poor, and the number of mouths there were at home. Well, well, my dear, said Mr. Tetterby, shaking her hand encouragingly, that's truth, after all. We are poor, and there are a number of mouths at home here. Ah, but, Dolph, Dolph, cried his wife, laying her hands upon his neck, my good, kind, patient fellow, when I had been at home a very little while, how different! Oh, Dolph, dear, how different it was! I felt as if there was a rush of recollection on me, all at once, that softened my hard heart, and filled it up till it was bursting. All our struggles for a livelihood, all our cares and wants since we have been married, all the times of sickness, all the hours of watching, we have ever had, by one another, or by the children, seemed to speak to me, and say that they had made us one, and that I never might have been, or could have been, or would have been, any other than the wife and mother I am. Then, the cheap enjoyments that I could have trodden on so cruelly, got to be so precious to me, oh so priceless, and dear, that I couldn't bear to think how much I had wronged them. And I said, and say again a hundred times, how could I ever behave so, Dolphus? How could I ever have the heart to do it? The good woman, quite carried away by her honest tenderness and remorse, was weeping with all her heart, when she started up with a scream, and ran behind her husband. Her cry was so terrified, that the children started from their sleep and from their beds, and clung about her. Nor did her gaze belie her voice, as she pointed to a pale man in a black cloak who had come into the room. Look at that man! Look there! What does he want? My dear, returned her husband, I'll ask him if he'll let me go. What's the matter? How you shake? I saw him in the street, when I was out just now. He looked at me, and stood near me. I am afraid of him. Afraid of him? Why? I don't know why. I, stop, husband, for he was going towards the stranger. She had one hand pressed upon her forehead, and one upon her breast, and there was a peculiar fluttering all over her, and a hurried, unsteady motion of her eyes, as if she had lost something. "'Are you ill, my dear?' "'What is it that is going from me again?' she muttered, in a low voice. "'What is this that is going away?' Then she abruptly answered, "'Ill? No, I am quite well.' and stood looking vacantly at the floor. Her husband, who had not been altogether free from the infection of her fear at first, and whom the present strangeness of her manner did not tend to reassure, addressed himself to the pale visitor in the black cloak, who stood still, and whose eyes were bent upon the ground. "'What may be your pleasure, sir?' he asked, "'with us. 
I fear that my coming in unperceived, returned the visitor, has alarmed you, but you were talking and did not hear me. My little woman says, perhaps you heard her say it, returned Mr. Tetterby, that it's not the first time you have alarmed her tonight. I am sorry for it. I remember to have observed her, for a few moments only, in the street. I had no intention of frightening her. As he raised his eyes in speaking, she raised hers. It was extraordinary to see what dread she had of him, and with what dread he observed it, and yet how narrowly and closely. My name, he said, is Redlaw. I come from the old college hard by. A young gentleman who is a student there, lodges in your house, does he not? Mr. Denham, said Tetterby. Yes. It was a natural action, and so slight as to be hardly noticeable. But the little man, before speaking again, passed his hand across his forehead, and looked quickly round the room, as though he were sensible of some change in its atmosphere. The chemist, instantly transferring to him the look of dread he had directed towards the wife, stepped back, and his face turned paler. The gentleman's room, said Tetterby, is upstairs, sir. There's a more convenient private entrance, but as you have come in here, it will save your going out into the cold if you'll take this little staircase, showing one communicating directly with the parlor, and go up to him that way, if you wish to see him. Yes, I wish to see him, said the chemist. Can you spare a light? The watchfulness of his haggard look, and the inexplicable distrust that darkened it, seemed to trouble Mr. Tetterby. He paused, and looking fixedly at him in return, stood for a minute or so, like a man stupefied or fascinated. At length he said, I'll light you, sir, if you'll follow me. No, replied the chemist, I don't wish to be attended or announced to him. He does not expect me. I would rather go alone. Please give me the light, if you can spare it, and I'll find the way. In the quickness of his expression of this desire, and in taking the candle from the newsman, he touched him on the breast. Withdrawing his hand hastily, almost as though he had wounded him by accident, for he did not know in what part of himself his new power resided, or how it was communicated, or how the manner of its reception varied in different persons, he turned and ascended the stair. But when he reached the top, he stopped and looked down. The wife was standing in the same place, twisting her ring round and round upon her finger. The husband, with his head bent forward on his breast, was musing heavily and sullenly. The children, still clustering about the mother, gazed timidly after the visitor, and nestled together when they saw him looking down. Come, said the father, roughly, there's enough of this. Get to bed here. The place is inconvenient and small enough, the mother added, without you, get to bed. The whole brood, scared and sad, crept away, little Johnny and the baby lagging last. The mother, glancing contemptuously round the sordid room, and tossing from her the fragments of their meal, stopped on the threshold of her task of clearing the table, and sat down, pondering idly and dejectedly. The father betook himself to the chimney-corner, and impatiently raking the small fire together, bent over it as if he would monopolize it all. They did not interchange a word. The chemist, paler than before, stole upward like a thief, looking back upon the change below, 
and dreading equally to go on or return. "'What have I done?' he said, confusedly. "'What am I going to do?' "'To be the benefactor of mankind,' he thought he heard a voice reply. He looked round, but there was nothing there, and a passage now shutting out the little parlour from his view, he went on, directing his eyes before him at the way he went. "'It is only since last night,' he muttered gloomily, that I have remained shut up, and yet all things are strange to me. I am strange to myself. I am here, as in a dream. What interest have I in this place, or in any place that I can bring to my remembrance? My mind is going blind. There was a door before him, and he knocked at it. Being invited, by a voice within, to enter, he complied. Is that my kind nurse? said the voice but I need not ask her. There is no one else to come here. It spoke cheerfully, though in a languid tone, and attracted his attention to a young man lying on a couch, drawn before the chimney-piece, with the back towards the door. A meagre scanty stove, pinched and hollowed like a sick man's cheeks, and bricked into the centre of a hearth that it could scarcely warm, contained the fire, to which his face was turned. Being so near the windy housetop, it wasted quickly, and with a busy sound, and the burning ashes dropped down fast. "'They chink when they shoot out here,' said the student, smiling, so, according to the gossips, they are not coffins, but purses. I shall be well and rich yet, some day, if it please God, and shall live perhaps to love a daughter Milly, in remembrance of the kindest nature and the gentlest heart in the world.' He put up his hand as if expecting her to take it but being weakened he lay still with his face resting on his other hand and did not turn round the chemist glanced about the room at the students books and papers piled upon a table in a corner where they and his extinguished reading lamp now prohibited and put away told of the attentive hours that had gone before this illness and perhaps caused it at such signs of his old health and freedom as the out-of-door attire that hung idle on the wall at those remembrances of other and less solitary scenes, the little miniatures upon the chimney-piece, and the drawing of home, at that token of his emulation, perhaps, in some sort, of his personal attachment to, the framed engraving of himself, the looker-on. The time had been, only yesterday, when not one of these objects, in its remotest association of interest with the living figure before him, would have been lost on Redlaw. Now, they were but objects, or, if any gleam of such connection shot upon him, it perplexed, and not enlightened him, as he stood looking round with a dull wonder. The student, recalling the thin hand which had remained so long untouched, raised himself on the couch, and turned his head. "'Mr. Redlaw!' he exclaimed, and started up. Redlaw put out his arm. "'Don't come nearer to me. I will sit here.' Remain you, where you are. He sat down on a chair near the door, and having glanced at the young man standing leaning with his hand upon the couch, spoke with his eyes averted towards the ground. I heard, by an accident, by what accident is no matter, that one of my class was ill and solitary. I received no other description of him than that he lived in this street. Beginning my inquiries at the first house in it, I have found him. I have been ill, sir, returned the student, 
not merely with a modest hesitation, but with a kind of awe of him, but am greatly better. An attack of fever, of the brain, I believe, has weakened me, but I am much better. I cannot say I have been solitary, in my illness, or I should forget the ministering hand that has been near me. You are speaking of the keeper's wife, said Redlaw. Yes. The student bent his head, as if he rendered her some silent homage. The chemist, in whom there was a cold, monotonous apathy, which rendered him more like a marble image on the tomb of the man who had started from his dinner yesterday at the first mention of the student's case, than the breathing man himself, glanced again at the student leaning with his hand upon the couch, and looked upon the ground, and in the air, as if for light for his blinded mind. "'I remembered your name,' he said, when it was mentioned to me downstairs, just now, and I recollect your face. We have held but very little personal communication together?' "'Very little. You have retired and withdrawn from me, more than any of the rest, I think?' The student signified assent. And why, said the chemist, not with the least expression of interest, but with a moody, wayward kind of curiosity. Why? How comes it that you have sought to keep especially from me the knowledge of your remaining here, at this season, when all the rest have dispersed, and of your being ill? I want to know why this is. The young man, who had heard him with increasing agitation, raised his downcast eyes to his face, and clasping his hands together, cried with sudden earnestness and with trembling lips. Mr. Redlaw, you have discovered me. You know my secret. Secret, said the chemist, harshly. I know? Yes. Your manner, so different from the interest and sympathy which endear you to so many hearts, your altered voice, the constraint there is in everything you say, and in your looks replied the student, warn me that you know me. That you would conceal it, even now, is but a proof to me. God knows I need none. Of your natural kindness and of the bar there is between us. A vacant and contemptuous laugh was all his answer. But, Mr. Redlaw, said the student, as a just man, and as a good man, think how innocent I am, except in name and descent of participation in any wrong inflicted on you or in any sorrow you have borne. Sorrow, said Redlaw, laughing. Wrong. What are those to me? For heaven's sake, entreated the shrinking student, do not let this mere interchange of a few words with me change you like this, sir. Let me pass again from your knowledge and notice. Let me occupy my old reserved and distant place among those whom you instruct know me only by the name I have assumed, and not by that of Longford. Longford! exclaimed the other. He clasped his head with both his hands, and for a moment turned upon the young man his own intelligent and thoughtful face. But the light passed from it, like the sunbeam of an instant, and it clouded as before. The name my mother bears, sir, faltered the young man, the name she took, when she might, perhaps, have taken one more honoured. Mr. Redlaw, hesitating, I believe I know that history, where my information halts, my guesses at what is wanting may supply something not remote from the truth. I am the child of a marriage that has not proved itself a well-assorted or a happy one. From infancy, I have heard you spoken of with honour and respect, with something that was almost reverence. 
i have heard of such devotion of such fortitude and tenderness of such rising up against the obstacles which press men down that my fancy since i learnt my little lesson from my mother has shed a lustre on your name at last a poor student myself from whom could i learn but you redlaw unmoved unchanged and looking at him with a staring frown answered by no word or sign i cannot say pursued the other i should try in vain to say how much it has impressed me and affected me to find the gracious traces of the past in that certain power of winning gratitude and confidence which is associated among us students among the humblest of us most with mr redlaw's generous name our ages and positions are so different sir and i am so accustomed to regard you from a distance that i wonder at my own presumption when i touch however lightly on that theme but to one who i may say who felt no common interest in my mother once it may be something to hear now that all is past with what indescribable feelings of affection i have in my obscurity regarded him with what pain and reluctance i have kept aloof from his encouragement when a word of it would have made me rich yet how i have felt it fit that i should hold my course content to know him and to be unknown mr redlaw said the student faintly what i would have said i have said ill for my strength is strange to me as yet but for anything unworthy in this fraud of mine forgive me and for all the rest forget me the staring frown remained on redlaw's face and yielded to no other expression until the student with these words advanced towards him as if to touch his hand when he drew back and cried to him don't come nearer to me the young man stopped shocked by the eagerness of his recoil and by the sternness of his repulsion and he passed his hand thoughtfully across his forehead the past is past said the chemist it dies like the brutes who talks to me of its traces in my life he raves or lies what have i to do with your distempered dreams if you want money here it is i came to offer it and that is all i came for there can be nothing else that brings me here he muttered holding his head again with both hands there can be nothing else and yet he had tossed his purse upon the table as he fell into this dim cogitation with himself the student took it up and held it out to him take it back sir he said proudly though not angrily i wish you could take it from me with it the remembrance of your words and offer you do he retorted with a wild light in his eyes you do i do the chemist went close to him for the first time and took the purse and turned him by the arm and looked him in the face there is sorrow and trouble in sickness is there not he demanded with a laugh the wondering student answered yes in its unrest in its anxiety in its suspense in all its train of physical and mental miseries said the chemist with a wild unearthly exultation all best forgotten are they not the student did not answer but again passed his hand confusedly across his forehead redlaw still held him by the sleeve when milly's voice was heard outside End of chapter two part two